Good morning. Well, it's our last Sunday together for 2012. A lot has taken place in one year. As I go back in my memory, you know, even as Danny kind of jokingly shared, you know, some of you might not know, but Danny lost part of his finger this last year, but he's still leading worship for us and, and doing a great job. Very good. You guys crack me up. You clap. <laughs> Danny lost a finger. <laughs> no, I, I get it. I understand. It's just joking with you. You know, and when I asked you guys the things that, to share the things good that have happened as well as the things that are bad, the, the reason I asked for the good and the bad is because our lives are shaped by the events that take place in our life. And they are shaped during the good times and they are shaped during the hard times. It's not just, oh, things went well, I guess everything is going good. It's actually even in those hard times that most of the work takes place within our lives. And, and as I look back, I mean, this, was, this has been a rough year, at least for my family and I, and I'm not here to throw a pity party. You're all invited, though, if you want to come. <laughs> but what I, I want to do is recognize that there are things that happen, and we need to connect the dots of what happens and why it happens. We can come to a place, and it happens oftentimes in, in the Christian circle, where we say things like, well, God knows and what we mean by that, of course God knows, but what we mean by that is, well, God planned it. And sometimes we negate responsibility. God is always at work. And he works all things out for the good, for those who love him and those who are called according to his purposes. He never stops working. In spite of the messes we make. If you have a copy of the scriptures, turn to Genesis chapter 47. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and Val will get it to you. And I promise this starts off a little downer, but we're going to pick it up. We have an account here of Jacob going before the Pharaoh of Egypt. And just a little recap of Jacob's story. Jacob was a twin brother. His older brother Esau and him were rivals. The Lord said that the older would serve the younger. It was prophetic. And that wasn't the way it happens in that society. It was the older who got the blessings of the father, the birthright, the inheritance but we know the situation that one day Esau was out and he was hungry and Jacob was cooking some lentil soup and Esau said, I'm starving, give me something to eat. And instead of giving his brother food, he says, well, give me your birthright and I'll give you your food. What a conniver. Your brother's hungry. Yeah, I want something for it. 
I want your birthright. And so Esau said, what does it matter to me if I'm famished and I die? Okay, I don't care. And he made little of his birthright, of his inheritance, of his place in that family. And so he said, you can have it. So sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. And then we also know with the help of his mom that he went in and when his father was old and couldn't see, Isaac was kind of going blind that his mom deceitfully clothed him and sent him in as he was going to give a blessing and he pretended to be his brother Esau, again conniving so that he could get more. And when he'd done that, he fled for his life. His mom said, you got to get out of here. Esau's going to kill you. And so he fled. He had this dream that was prophetic. Jacob's ladder, it's called, where angels were ascending and descending from heaven, that ladder being a symbol of Christ himself. And so here this conniver has this vision from God and sees these things. He gets married. And he, being a swindler, ends up getting swindled with Laban. He sees Rachel and he goes, oh yeah, I want to marry her. And Laban says, work for me for seven years and you can have my daughter. And as you may know, the story goes, after the seven years, they went out partying, having a big festival. And as the wedding took place, he went into the tent. It was night. And Leah, the older sister, went in and he got Leah for his wife, Leah for his wife, instead of Rachel. He woke up in the morning and he was surprised. (laughs) And so he ended up working another seven years so that he could also have Rachel, because that's the one he loved. And so now there is a conflict. You have these two wives and we have their children. One of Jacob's children, Joseph, is the favorite born of Rachel. And Jacob's brothers sell him into slavery. He gets into Egypt and he's thrown into prison. And through a series of events, Joseph ends up second to Pharaoh. And when he sees his brothers coming in to get food because there's a famine, he plays a little trick on them and gets the whole family to come and finally gets Jacob to come. And now the family is reunited. And that's where we're picking up here in Genesis 47, starting at verse 7. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh. After Jacob blessed Pharaoh, that means greeted Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him, how old are you? I think that's curious. He must have looked old. How old are you? Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult. And they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. Then Jacob blessed or said farewell to Pharaoh and went out of his presence. Pharaoh asks this man, who is the father of this incredible man, Joseph, how old are you? He says, I'm 130 years, my pilgrimage. And what does he have to say about his life? My years have been few. So 130 is considered few in his mind. And very difficult. I wonder if sometimes that isn't where we're at. You know, the years are flying by. It's scary. 
how quick they go. And it's scary that they keep going quicker as you get older. I don't know why that is. Maybe because your memory goes and so you don't remember as much of it. So that was quick, yeah, because you forgot half of it. But it goes by so quick. And life can be so difficult. And you see the, the difficulties that arose from Jacob's life and a lot of it was due to the things that he did, the choices he made. Being a swindler, swindling his brother, having to deal with that family conflict. That same conflict ends up showing up in his life again. The problems he has between having these two wives and all these children. The 12 tribes and the conflict that takes place among them. And we see that the choices he made led to the difficult life that he had. And that is the case so often. I want to look at another situation. And it's in the life of David and with one of his friends. In, In Psalm 41 verse 9, it says, Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. In this psalm, David is declaring one of his close people, his counselors, has turned against him. And we want to look at this in depth and see what has taken place. So again, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 16. We're going to start at verse 15. And we're going to talk about David's counselor, Ahithophel. In this story, David's son, Absalom, is now taking over or wanting to take over David's kingdom. And so here's David's own son now trying to rise up, assert himself, and take over the kingdom and kill his own father. And in verse 15 it says, Meanwhile, Absalom and all the men of Israel came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. Then Hushai the archite, David's confidant, went to Absalom and said to him, Long live the king, long live the king. Absalom said to Hushai, So this is the love you show your friend? If he's your friend, why didn't you go with him? Hushai said to Absalom, No, the one chosen by the Lord, meaning you, Absalom, by these people and by all the people of Israel, his I will be, and I will remain with him. Furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve the son? Just as I served your father, so I will serve you. So now we have both Ahithophel and Hushai, people who were in David's court, now betraying David and going over to his son. Verse 20 says, Absalom said to Ahithophel, give us your advice. What should we do? Ahithophel answered, This was David's counselor, and he's answering. What should we do? We're taking over my father's kingdom. What should we do now? Listen to his advice. Sleep with your father's concubines, whom he left to take care of the place, palace. 
Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself obnoxious to your father, and the hands of everyone with you will be more resolute. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and he slept with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now, in those days, the advice Ahithophel gave was like that of one who inquires of God. That was how both David and Absalom regarded all of Ahithophel's advice. This guy was very wise. He knew how to plan something and get results. He was a get-it-done kind of guy. And even though what he was doing here was just wicked, he knew it would get the results that Absalom needed And so he advised him to do this thing. Sleep with your father's concubines so that everyone knows you've taken over. He does this. He gets this advice. And his plan works well. Let's go down to chapter 17, verse 14. Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai and Archite is better than that of Ahithophel. They had asked for some more advice of what to do. Ahithophel wanted to pursue David. Hushai had other advice, getting more people. And it says, for the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. And so, We see God's hand working. Both these people who were once advisors to David now give Absalom advice. Ahithophel's advice was good. It would have succeeded. Hushai's advice wasn't as good, but Absalom went with that and God worked in that to confound Absalom because he was still going to work and accomplish what he needed to through David. This is a dark period in David's life. His son is trying to take over and kill him. His son is belittling him in front of the people, is humiliating him in front of the people. His close advisors, those who used to speak into his ear what to do, are now counseling his son against him. We see that through this time, David is fleeing. He's brokenhearted because of his son. And we wonder, what's going on? Why would something so evil take place? Go all the way to the end of the book, 2 Samuel chapter 23. We're going to start at verse... 34. Eliphelet, son of Ashabai, the Mekite, Eliam, son of Ahithophel, there's Ahithophel's son, Eliam, the Gilanite, Hezro, the Carmelite, see, that was where Starbucks got some of their coffee things. Right? <laughs> Peri, the Arabite, Igel, son of Nathan from Zobah, the son of Hagri, Zelek, 
the Ammonite, Neri, the Beerothite, the armor-bearer of Joab, son of Zariah, Ira, the Erithite, Garab, the Erithite, and Uriah, the Hittite. They were 37 in all. This 37 in all were David's mighty men. And some names need to stand out to us. We see that Eliam was Ahithophel's son. We also see Uriah here, the Hittite. Uriah was married to Bathsheba. And we know that Bathsheba's father was Eliam. We see that in the scripture. And so Bathsheba's grandfather was Ahithophel. Think about that. David took a woman that wasn't his, killed her husband, who was one of his mighty men because of what he wanted. And the woman he took, her grandfather was one of his counselors. And now his counsel to David's son is sleep with your father's concubines. He moved over to his side. Why did all this happen? You need to connect the dots. David, what did you do? You think you just did this and it only affected you? It only affected Bathsheba? It only affected Uriah? It affected the whole kingdom and the person who was your close confidant, the person who gave you good advice, it poisoned his heart towards you. How foolish we are and how short-sighted we can be when we don't recognize the rippling effect of the things that we do. How our lives are intertwined with so many people. Being in a position where I I am counseling people as a pastor and people come to me and they tell me of the difficulties that take place in their life. And even in this last year, as I, I think back of the people's lives that I've been involved with. I I can't tell you how many times my heart has been broken. And as I've seen just this rippling effect of this devastation that took place, that took place, that took place, and now you've got family members against one another because of what one person has done. And there's this blindness. It's the alcoholic who thinks that All I'm doing is hurting myself. It doesn't matter. And they don't realize the effect they're having on their home, on their children, on their marriage. And what that's going to do to their sons and their daughters as they grow up. They're distant from those things, but you've got to connect the dots. Your life is what you are making it. 
So what are you making it? But I don't want to leave us here as (laughs) Happy New Year. Uh, (laughs) What I want us to understand is that our lives influence more than we know, have an effect on those around us more than we know. And Jesus spoke to us about that. So we're going to turn one last place to Luke chapter 16. Jesus gives us a parable. It's one of my favorite parables, and it's one of the most confusing. Maybe that's why it's one of my favorite. I just live in this kind of place. Chapter 16, verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I am not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of the master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What a strange parable. Jesus isn't telling us it's okay to to take your master's stuff and cheat him. That's not the point of this story. What he's trying to do is bring a clarity, an illustration about where this person is in a place of deficit. He is now going to be without a job. He was misusing his place, but there is a way to get to this place of deficit into a place where you actually have surplus. And the way you do that is by how you treat people and the friends that you make. That there is something of more value than the olive oil, than the bushels of wheat. There is something of more value than that money. The thing of value is the people who will then be able to help you. And Jesus commends this dishonest servant because he invested in the right thing. What did he invest in? He invested in people. And here's what I want to leave as we go into a new year. Here's something that I want us to take with us. Just as 
David looked out and saw Bathsheba on the roof and said, I want her and took her in for himself, even though she was married to one of his mighty men, even though her grandfather was his counselor, even though he did this injustice to her and it caused this rippling effect of tragedy in his life, we can have a rippling effect in our lives for the good. As much as we can do harm, think what happens when we invest in care and do what is good to people. What will your life look like? What will be the rippling effect in your and my life if we actually care about others and take that friendship seriously? How wealthy will we be? Because it is better to give than to receive. And our actions have consequences, good or bad. How we treat people affects our world for the good or for the bad. And wherever we are at right now, whatever is taking place in your life today, tomorrow it will be affected by how you treat people in your life today how you treat your friends, how you treat your wife, your children, your husband, your coworkers, the friends you make are the investment in your future. And how you treat people, Jesus said, is how you treat me. Jesus is giving us not just a warning, but advice. And I hope that we take this advice into the new year and recognize the power of what we do and the power of how we treat people, of what it can do in our lives and in the lives of those around us. It will affect not only you, not only your wife, not only your children, but it will affect their friends, it will affect your friends, it will affect relatives, it will affect a huge circle. David had no idea that his moment of passion would also be his most difficult time in his life when his own son acted like him, when his own counselors remembered what he did to them because he did it to their granddaughter. We can't detach ourselves. We are what we do. And we need to own that. And we need to recognize the power that is in that, because if we do what is good, incredible good can take place. And God entrusts our lives with this potential to do incredible evil or incredible good. Or I suppose we can do nothing at all. But the choice is ours of how we want to live 
and the legacy that we want to leave behind. May 2013 be an investment year where we invest in people, where we see the value of those friendships and we care for those people by doing good to them. Let's pray. Father, as I have been reflecting this past year and all the things that have happened within my life, within my family's life, Lord, some of those things have been crippling. They have knocked the wind out of me and Corrine. They have brought us to our knees. But Lord, you have met us on our knees. And you have strengthened us. And you have shaped us even in those hard times. God, you are always working we need to always be yielding. We need to recognize that where we invest our lives is where our future will be. And Jesus, you told us in the world we will have tribulation. But you also told us that we could take courage, that we could have a joy because you have overcome the world. So in spite of the ripples that hit us, in spite of the tragedies that affect us or that we do that affect others, Lord, you are able still to take a man like David and use him to be the lineage of the Savior. You are able to make him a man after your heart. You alone can change the heart. And so we pray you would continue your work in our lives, your promise, you've begun something, complete it. And our responsibility is to yield to you and to the work you're doing. And Lord, I, I pray that the things that I have talked about this morning would not be something that just brings us down, but would be something that would cause us to think what would happen if I would be the man or the woman that gave of myself to those around me like you did, Jesus? What kind of effect could I have on the world around me if I had faith in you trusted in you and lived like you lived. What would tomorrow look like if I would take today seriously? And so Lord, I pray we would be filled with this hope 
of lives that can affect the world around us for good, that can affect our own world for good, that could bring healing, that can bring your salvation to those around us. Thank you again for this opportunity. I thank you for this year, the good, the bad. We are grateful for your faithfulness through it all. And we trust your faithfulness will continue. You are faithful, God, forever. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.